0: Early naturopaths and Hippocratic physicians used to say that all disease begins in the gut. Follow your gut. You are what you eat. These sayings are throughout our culture and tradition, pointing out the importance of our gut in our health, in our lives, and even in our psychological and emotional health. Now that might be a strange concept for some that your gut. Actually can affect your mood and while there's a lot of proposed mechanisms for how this is the case It certainly is and in fact Up to 95% of the serotonin in your whole body is produced in your gut 95% the same exact molecule that's in your brain the same neurotransmitter that has been targeted for the past two to three decades by psychiatry in the form of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which increase the amount of serotonin in your brain. And not to tangent too much, but it is worth mentioning that the theories that the main cause of depression has to do with serotonin imbalance have long been disproven. And in fact, a lot of the research around SSRIs has been finding in the past uh, decade or so, that SSRIs have effects that we don't really fully understand. The simplified model of you have low serotonin, increased serotonin to treat depression has long been thrown away because uh, in many cases, it isn't so simple. Interestingly, some new research coming out in the past few years suggests that uh, certain antidepressants work through modulating neuroplasticity or the process in the neurons, the neuronal connections in the brain that allows new pathways to grow, form, and pathways to change, habitual pathways such as recurrent thoughts or uh, negative lines of thinking rumination, etc. We are finding now that whenever you speak about the gut, you also have to speak about the brain. When you speak about the brain, you have to speak about the gut. Of course, many of the systems in the body work this way, but there's a particular link uh, specifically between the gut and the brain, and that's referred to as the gut-brain axis. This and more we'll be exploring in today's episode with Dr. Sierra Gontroff, a naturopathic doctor working at the school I graduated from, National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. Talk about gut health, diets, eating, the microbiome, and much, much more. And in honor of Easter, and I'm speaking about Eastern Orthodox Easter, which uh, my tradition, my family celebrates, which is uh, coming up this May 2nd, I am doing an Easter egg hunt, which is really an Easter herb hunt that will get one lucky person a free Demeter's Bitters digestive stimulation and digestive support tincture. It helps deal with indigestion, helps relieve uh, bloating, support healthy and natural digestion, filled with a lot of great spicy delicious herbs and one bitter one. Now, when you get about to the halfway point or so, the show will stop and I will give a hint and instructions on how you can get a free tincture. This will end on May 1st and only one tincture will be sent out. So be sure to listen through and see if you could be lucky. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Sierra Contra. She has been working at N U M for quite some time as a resident, as a teacher, and as an overall amazing person and an amazing example of a great naturopath who really focuses on the whole person. I've had the uh, joy of being on her shift when I was in school, so she's wonderful. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did about GI health, gut health, and all things gastrointestinal. I tried something a little bit different for this episode, giving a lot more uh, introduction and explanation around the topic. So I hope you guys like that. Here is Dr. G. All right. Welcome to today's episode of the Herbal Hour podcast with Dr. Dan. We have an episode today focusing specifically on uh, gut health, the gut brain access, natural things you can do for healing your gut. And we're here with a special guest today. Her name is uh, Dr. Goncharoff, and uh, she has been focusing on a lot of GI type concerns with patients working through the naturopathic uh, way of healing. So thank you for being on the show.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me today. Valdin. super excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So I'm very excited to get into uh, the more intricate and complex aspects of digestive health. Typically, digestive health is viewed as a very kind of simple thing. You put in food, it goes out, that's it. There's this or that problem. But uh, the research is coming out that things like the microbiome uh, play a huge role in digestive health and even more interestingly in mood, mental states and a lot of other processes. Um, so to start off, can you uh, can you give us a little background of uh, your path, who you are, your work?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, my name is Sierra Gontaroff and I'm an naturopathic physician currently working at the National University of Natural Medicine. I am completing my second year of residency there. And um, I also attended National University of Natural Medicine, as you did as well. It's a great school. And I would say, you know, I'm still kind of early in practice, so still trying to figure out exactly what my niche is, but I've been focusing a lot on gastrointestinal health, women's health. I also like to treat pediatrics, really any age, family medicine from little babies to all the way up to, um, you know, prior to death. I love treating everybody. Uh, I also have a very large passion for global health. I am, currently hold a position on the board for Naturopaths Without Borders and um, am very passionate about. Providing and care to everyone, you know, healthcare should be a a right or not not Agreed. you know a right, but not um not as easily accessible as we would like it. Um, so that's kind of my medical background. I'm originally from Santa Cruz, California. Total beach bum at heart. It's a little hard living in the Pacific Northwest without a little sunshine. Mm-hmm they say we're close to the ocean, but we're not. It's a lie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm loving living in Portland, loving being a naturopathic doctor, and that's kind of me in a nutshell.
0: All right. So let's just jump right into it. Um, What is the microbiome? So, you know, there's a lot of information going around about gut health, the microflora, this kind of thing. What is your understanding of uh, the microbiome and how it actually impacts health?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's quite a loaded question, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So like you mentioned, there's been a lot of studies recently on the gut and they're calling the the gut, the second brain, Mm -hmm. because they're really finding that the, the gut has so much to do with everything in our bodies. So the gut microbiome is definitely one of those pieces. It's basically a collection of bacteria, viruses, archaea, and uh, microbes that live in our gut, and there's thousands of different species, and everybody, it's kind of like a fingerprint, everybody is very unique, Mm -hmm. Um, so we all have our own different sets of bacteria, Um, and what the microbiome does is, is, it's actually very vast, and I don't think that we still fully comprehend everything that the microbiome is doing. Um, Our microbiome starts to develop at birth, and so the way that you're born, whether it's C-section or vaginal delivery, will actually affect your gut microbiome. And then throughout life, it's continued to be impacted. So big things that can impact the gut microbiome are diet. Of course, our standard American diet doesn't do great things for our gut microbiome. Um, stress, antibiotic use, and then you know things like probiotics and prebiotics. Those are some big things that impact our gut microbiome. Um, when things like... When you do like a lot of antibiotics or things that can disrupt the microbiome, that's when you start to see negative consequences. And they're seeing more and more that when you have an imbalance in the gut microbiome, you can lead to, this can lead to other health diseases, such Mm -hmm. as type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, even Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. um, more and more is being found out as they do more studies. So there's this huge connection between the gut composition and your health.
0: Yeah, what originally uh, really interested me in the microbiome uh, being focused in mental health and thinking, well, you don't really need to work as much with the gut or diet for mental health things, Um, but then being completely uh, mind blown by the fact that uh, fecal transplants, where they take out essentially the microbiome of one healthy person, and they put it into a, uh, a person who has a chronic disease and then their disease just completely going away, even though and it's not even necessarily like a gut related disease. Uh, so that just blew my mind um, in terms of how how important it is in health.
1: Yeah. Fecal transplants are definitely a fascinating topic to me as well. And there's, it's, I'm not super up to date on all of the research, but essentially, you know, so we have this gut brain access and, and it's a bi-directional system. So, so when we're stressed out, mm-hmm. uh, the signals are being sent to our gut, but also things that we eat and, and the production of neurotransmitters in our gut also are sent up to our brain. So it's this bi-directional system. So our gut, our gut bacteria produce neurotransmitters like um, acetylcholine, dopamine, epinephrine, all of these really important transmitters um, for all sorts of different functions in our body. And so when you're having um, impacted gut microbiome or, you know, um, a alteration in your gut microbiome, this can lead to decreased um, or abnormal production of these neurotransmitters neurotransmitters, which we can mm-hmm. then go up to the brain and cause mood dysregulation, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and such. So diet is a huge piece um, for your mental health.
0: Mm. I remember reading that, uh, something like, is it 80 or 80 or so percent of serotonin in the body is produced in the gut?
1: Yeah, I think it's higher. I think it's more like 95% mm. of serotonin is produced in the gut, which is just crazy.
0: Yeah. Does that, uh, does that serotonin in the gut actually get into the nervous system or the systemic circulation, or is it more like local? That's kind of what I was always interested in.
1: It does go systemic. So, I mean, like I was saying, this gut brain connection. So the vagus nerve is like the primary Mm -hmm. pathway I would say between the gut and the brain and the vagus nerve does help transmit some of these neurotransmitters and that's where a lot of this does happen. So Yes, it's produced in the gut, but nothing ever just stays in the gut. It all, it it goes everywhere once we eat. Um, so yes, that, that serotonin is being produced systemically. That's why, again, that, that healthy diet, that gut balance, um, plays such a huge impact in our Mm. our mood.
0: Yeah. And also, uh, uh, food allergies. So we were talking a little bit about this, uh, before of how the microbiome is tied to food allergies. Um, And there's a lot of competing theories of, you know, if you have some food allergy, uh, what you should do, should you not eat the food or people who have food allergies to a whole wide array of different substances, why that's the cause. Um, And the theory that uh, gut health is actually at the foundation of that seems to make a lot of sense. Um, And the idea of like leaky gut as a cause of uh, all sorts of different uh, allergy issues.
1: Sure. Yeah. Gosh. Food sensitivities are one of my favorite topics because I feel like I don't know what the percentages, but there I feel like the majority of GI symptoms are often secondary to some kind of food sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And I want to clarify food allergy versus food sensitivity. So our food allergy is what we think of typically when you think of a food. Allergies. So like when somebody eats a peanut and their throat swells up mm, okay, and they have to go to the hospital, anaphylaxis, exactly. So that's what we call our IgE response. Um, it's an immediate response. We cannot ever eat those foods or we might die. So that's an allergy. A food sensitivity is a little bit less severe. Um, it's what we call our IgG response. It's a delayed hypersensitivity response. And this can happen up to three days after consuming the food. So up to 72 hours later. And those are more symptoms like diarrhea, abdominal pain, maybe some skin rashes, headaches, these really vague symptoms that we might not be able to pin down and correlate with something specifically. And that makes it a little bit harder to figure out what those food sensitivities might be. Um, So this is something I talk a lot about with patients. Um, Common food sensitivities, which are very prevalent in our standard American diet are things like dairy, gluten, um, food additives like nitrite sulfites, corn, soy, all of those delicious things that we all want to eat all the time mm-hmm. and are in everything are really common food sensitivities. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to figure out your food sensitivities, the gold standard and the preferred way that I like to figure out food sensitivities is by doing a elimination diet. Mm mm-hmm which is not for everybody. It's definitely, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, so an eliminate elimination diet consists of, well, the goal is to cut out majority of foods for six weeks. And we say six weeks, because again, and going back to that IgG antibody response, it takes a while for our body to clear these antibodies. So every time we eat a food, any food, whether we're sensitive to it or not, our bodies produce antibodies. And so these antibodies cycle through our system, and then it takes some time for them to clear out. So we say six weeks for this elimination diet because that gives your body ample time, at least about four weeks to clear out all of the remaining IgG antibodies that might be in your system from past food sensitivities. And then it gives you another two weeks to really just like extra clear out the system. So kind of a reset. And then after the six weeks of cutting out the majority of foods, And there's a list of, um, you know, acceptable foods that are really well tolerated and um, like rice and chicken and things like that. But after this point, you can start adding foods back in. Mm -hmm. And this is a little bit tricky. Uh, And again, this comes back to that delayed food sensitivity piece. Um, So I recommend adding one new food in every three days, which is again, really challenging for people that haven't eaten all these delicious foods for six weeks. They're ready to just jump right back in, but it's important to do it slow because if we add in one food and then we wait that three days to see if there's a reaction, then we can really easily say, okay, that food was safe or not. If we add in too many things at once, we might get a little bit mixed on our signals, and then that whole six weeks of elimination period is kind of lost.
0: Yeah, it's a very you have to be very disciplined and very structured about it. Um, and of course, uh, the aspect of how do you how do you know that you're having Like a food allergy versus a food sensitivity. What are some of the things that uh, you've seen in your work of signs that someone has um, a food sensitivity?
1: Yeah. I would say, you know, for most people that have a food allergy, they typically know they're mm. like, don't give me peanuts. I'm going to die. Or yeah. They get a rash.
0: They get itchy. Yeah, they got their EpiPen on them.
1: So they yeah. usually know when they're allergic. Now mm. food sensitivity, like I said, it's a little bit more difficult to understand and it, it can be really vague symptoms. Um, somebody could have chronic abdominal pain their entire life and they've always had kind of looser stools. They get headaches you know, but this has been their life forever, right? Since they were eight or since they were 12 or, you know, hard to say. Um, And that's really hard to tease out. So even if I don't know if it's a food sensitivity causing a patient's symptoms, I will still often, if if not an elimination diet, at minimum, I'll do like a, a food diary. And so what that consists of is having the patient track everything they eat and drink for anywhere from three days to seven days, ideally a week, so you can get like a nice full view of their diet. Um, And then they write down any kind of symptoms that they're having, so whether it's abdominal pain, diarrhea, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're doing that for breakfast, lunch and dinner, and you're tracking their foods. And this can be helpful for the people that one don't want to commit to cutting out all these delicious foods for six weeks. Um, But it gives you a little bit more autonomy as a patient. You can kind of see these correlations a little bit better when you write Mm -hmm. them down. It's hard to remember. I can't even remember what I ate for lunch yesterday most of the time. Mm -hmm. So writing them down and then writing these symptoms can be really helpful. And then I explain to patients, you know, sometimes we can have these delayed reactions up to three days later. So maybe you don't think it's that glass of milk you drink because you're not getting diarrhea that night, mm-hmm. but let's say you drank that glass of milk and three days later you got diarrhea. Well, maybe there's that correlation that you weren't seeing in your head, but when you write it down, you might start seeing those connections.
0: That makes uh, that makes a lot of sense too, because um, even with you eating your current diet, uh, just seeing those correlations It would like if it really was a food sensitivity that was affecting you a lot, it should be able to be seen because if it's so, if it's so, so, so subtle that you would have to take away all foods and add it back in, then maybe it's not actually something that you even need to take out necessarily.
1: Sure. And I would say our bodies are pretty good about cutting things out that we don't tolerate in general. So people are like, oh, I don't really like eggs. And then you go do their food sensitivity testing. They're actually like sensitive to eggs and the body just kind of knew so the body's really good about already knowing. What I really love about diet diaries though is when mm-hmm. the patients have these re- revelations and then they come back to me and they're like, it's dairy. Dairy's been causing all of my mm-hmm. symptoms. I figured it out. And I'm like, yes, I love that you're the doctor here. I don't, I mean, you know, like I guided you on your journey, but you did you you figured out the answer. And I love that. I love when patients can, you know, find the healing in their own way.
0: Yeah, there's such a there's such a wide spectrum in terms of uh, approaches to diet. Uh, and like two extremes that I think people should avoid. And, and one is thinking that, Oh, it's all BS. There's no such thing as any kind of sensitivities. There's no just eat, you know, it's all in your head. And then there's the other extreme of like every food I'm getting triggered by this food and that food and this food. Um, I know people who, uh, have sensitivities to like 10, 15 (coughs) type of, uh, type of foods. Um, Mm -hmm. How so bringing in like the uh, the mind aspect, how would you recommend uh, trying to understand and separate out the mental component from the symptoms? because uh, I've uh, done uh, eliminations for myself on on certain foods that I thought were bothering me. and during those times when I put them back in, I felt like I had uh, like symptoms from it but later down the road i kind of came back to it and uh when i ate that food regularly i found i wasn't having any symptoms at all and it's almost like i had um an expectation that it was bad for me so that i had like a bad feeling or some kind of symptom because obviously the mind and body are so attached if you uh you know you go to your doctor and they tell you that uh Gluten is terrible and it does this, that, and this. I mean, how can you eat it and not at least somehow be affected by it, even if you don't have any uh, sensitivity? So what's like the, uh, what's the way that you would differentiate those type of things? Yeah, so,
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, differentiating the causes of GI pain is It's tricky. Right. And that's why people have these chronic GI complaints for 20 years that nobody could figure out because Mm -hmm. it's so hard to like find the nitty gritty. Um, One thing that I would say is, you know, food sensitivities may not always be forever. A food allergy is forever. You know, if you're allergic to dairy and makes you vomit, you, you can't breathe. That's going to probably be forever. But a food sensitivity can actually change. So like you mentioned, you ate a food and you were sensitive to it and then you came back to it and it mm-hmm. wasn't so bad. Mm-hmm. And that actually comes down to general gut inflammation. So mm-hmm. if you've been, let's say you've been eating something that you're sensitive, let's just say go with dairy since that's a very common food sensitivity. So let's say you've been drinking a latte every morning for years and, you know, you've been getting some loose stools and some headaches, but you contribute that to something else, whatever you continue to drink your latte. So every day you're drinking something that causes inflammation to your gut. And this is going to have some long-term consequences. Um, we have these tight junctions in our gut, basically the cells where they stick together. Mm-hmm. Um, of, when we have long-term inflammation, those junctions can start to pull apart. Um, in the naturopathic community, we call this leaky gut. Um I know that word isn't uh, used in the conventional community, but that's essentially what's happening is these tight junctions get loose and you can start having um, neurotransmitters and things kind of leak through the system. Mm -hmm.
0: And allergens, things that normally wouldn't be in the body that uh, even like relatively benign substances that when in the gut, they cause no issues. If they get into the blood, then uh, that's kind of a a leading theory of food allergies in general. Um.
1: Exactly. You you nailed the nail on the head. That's exactly. So if your gut is inflamed, m- most things are going to cause some symptoms because you're just inflamed, you're not absorbing things correctly, mm-hmm. allergens are getting into your bloodstream, like you said. And so you may not have a sensitivity to these foods at all. But because your gut's inflamed, you're reacting to all these things. And you'll see this on some food sensitivity testing you can get, where the person comes back positive for all 96 foods that we can test for. And you're just like, there's no way Mm -hmm. that you're sensitive to every single food out here. And that's a good red flag. Like, okay, they're probably not sensitive, but they probably have this overall gut inflammation that's contributing to these high sensitivities. And oftentimes, removing that food that you're actually sensitive to for that six-week period where we often recommend that, um, elimination diet that will often give that gut time to heal and bring those tight junctions back together and decrease inflammation so that when you go back and eat those foods that you thought you might've been sensitive to, but it was actually unrelated, then you might tolerate those foods
0: better. Mm. How do you feel about doing some type of intermittent fasting or fasting and using that as a judgment of uh, food sensitivities? Like, um, I've been, I've done this uh, quite a bit. This is typically the way that I, uh, that I did it just to be sure is I wouldn't eat anything for, let's say, you know, 24 hours, and then I would just eat one food. And when I did that, it was always so noticeable. Um, for example, I would not eat for 24 hours doing a fast. And then I would eat this big bowl of like wheat noodles and like a clock, 24 hours later, I would have like lower abdominal pain, and I I couldn't figure out what it was for for a bit, um, and then I kind of linked that together. But I I never noticed that, um, and it almost actually didn't even really occur when it was mixed in with other food. Uh, yeah, what I do
1: you mean- think about that? Yeah. I think fasting is great for some people. I don't recommend mm-hmm. fasting for everybody. That's true. Um, yeah, but I do think it has its positives. I've never really thought of fasting um, as a way to determine food sensitivities, and I would say that kind. The reason why I never think about that is because of that up to three day response. Oh,
0: you would have to do like a three day fast at minimum, right? And, and, then that, that's, and that's that's It's a little tricky. Um, yeah.
1: Whereas if you're doing the elimination diet, you're eating like I don't know five or six foods that are pretty uncommonly allergenic. Um, so you're still able to eat. Um, and then when you add in those new foods, it's when you start to see those. So it's kind of similar in a way, like you're still adding in that one food and waiting three days while also eating like five other things. But if you've had no symptoms in that six weeks while you're eating those other things, and then you add one thing in
0: and then the symptoms symptoms, come in, then you can be pretty sure it's that that one thing,
1: Um, which -hmm. is helpful for those that can't commit to a fast or for those that shouldn't be fasting like diabetics.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, especially people who have histories of eating disorders, that kind of thing. Um, fasting can, of course, be, you know, it can re-trigger uh, those aspects, the traumas, those. Uh, so always, always important, especially for uh, for naturopaths to, to understand.
1: Definitely. Um, but then going back to like the mind-body connection, mm-hmm. I mean, Yes. It's really tr- tricky to figure out what's causing what, but one thing we can do. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. Cause you mm-hmm. can't talk about the gut without talking about our autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So our sympathetic nervous system or what most people know as our fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what gets activated when we're stressed out, when we're anxious, um, when we're getting ready to run from the bear, they say, mm-hmm. you know, our heart rate goes up, all of our blood from our gut gets shunted away from our gut to our periphery, to our extremities so that we can run if we need to or fight if we need to. Um, And then on the opposite end of that is our parasympathetic or or our rest and digest phase. So this is when we're relaxing, we're getting ready to eat all of that blood that was in our extremities goes back to our gut to help with digestion. Uh, Our nervous system calms down. And so we want to be in a parasympathetic state when we're eating and I would say the majority of us, at least in America, are, are often pretty sympathetic dominant. We, we live these really high stress lives and COVID-19 has definitely exacerbated all of those feelings. Mm-hmm. I know for most, um, and that is a huge piece of digestion. So if you can try to target this higher sympathetic tone, this higher stress and work targeting that and see if that helps with your digestive complaints, then that would be another good way to kind of tease out the two pieces. And, and you know, that's also all interconnected. So if you're having high stress, you might have higher food sensitivities, just kind of secondary to that. Um, but I would say that would be one way to kind of tease it out.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, like how important it is to be in that parasympathetic relaxed state uh, while we're eating, it even for a couple of hours afterwards, during the digestion process, because of course, uh, digestion takes you know a long time, some, sometimes twenty-four hours or or longer, um, and not not much is said about that from a kind of a cultural or conventional standpoint. It's it's pretty typical um, for many people to eat while doing something else to eat on the run, to be like literally running and eating a snack bar to quickly, you know, eat something. And it's um, the body does, you know, amazingly well to adapt to it because uh, you know, we evolved that. Yeah. You can eat and run from a tiger too. Uh, and you'll more or less be okay. And digestion will happen to some extent,
1: Eventually, but
0: it won't be ideal. It won't yeah. be ideal. And uh, if that's chronic, then yeah, I've seen it be the case where just that little change, um, just being aware of the eating process, uh, like tasting the food, taking time, eating slowly, enjoying it, just eating food, and not doing anything else. Um, it completely changes everything because uh, obviously the, the mental components eating, they call it like the cephalic phase when you see food, you get hungry, you smell it, all the kind of. Uh, gastric juices start moving saliva all those things that we actually need to digest food well um but we don't typically do that uh here in the west it's kind of like oh food eat and nothing uh potentially why cooking could be so therapeutic because you like you always kind of like work up like a hunger and you get ready Mm -hmm. and so i've always noticed that uh food i cook is uh, always um more uh i'm always more relaxed when i eat food that i cooked myself and i always uh digestion seems a lot better in general like less issues
1: you're completely right yes um we call it food hygiene and Mm -hmm. you know being in medical school and a doctor so bad at that i'm like i'm always eating in class or on Mm -hmm. the way to class or you know it's the worst i'm really bad about it but you're completely right so digestion starts before food even hits your mouth. So when you're cooking food, smelling food, seeing the food, that stimulates the whole digestive cascade. And so you nailed it, you're completely right. So when you cook your food versus when you buy your food and get a delivery, it's a completely different thing. when you get your food delivered, you don't have that time to see the food, smell the food. Mm-hmm. I mean, you smell it when it comes in your door, but mm-hmm. you don't really have that same time to increase those digestive juices. Whereas when you're cooking, you're salivating, you're like, oh my God, hurry up, let's eat. Um, so 100% digestive starts with sight and smell and all of those other senses. Mm-hmm. So that's really important that you like, even just like, if you do get takeout, it's fine, but like sit there for a moment and maybe take a look at your mm-hmm. food and really express, you know, joy for that food. Um, we should be thankful that we have food in this mm-hmm. country. Right. Um, and then there's a couple of other things we can do too, which I think, um, in general, most people aren't so good at. So focusing on your food, like you said, really mm-hmm. making meal times about mealtimes. Um, Not having TV on, not reading a book. I know parents are commonly like just picking food off the, you know, pan while they're cooking for their children. That's not really great either. You should really sit down and enjoy your meal and focus Mm -hmm. on your meal. Um, Another thing that we have a hard time with is chewing our food thoroughly. Mm -hmm. So we're like, you know, often like on the go, let's just get it down. We need, you know, it's more of like a, we have to do this, whether than I want to do this type of thing, I Mm -hmm. feel like. Um, so really chewing your food thoroughly, making sure it's liquefied before you swallow it. They say chew your food like 30 times, um, before swallowing, I'm not going to sit there and count my bites. Cause that seems yeah, a bit that, excessive. That but...
0: That is a little bit excessive to count. Right.
1: Yeah. But you know, <laughs> make sure that it's all the chunks Ball are bar. gone. It's liquefied and that will increase, um, It will improve digestion because you're getting that mechanical breakdown from your teeth. And then you're Mm -hmm. also getting that chemical breakdown from your saliva. So Mm -hmm. it's all happening in the mouth before it even gets to the stomach. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that I learned in medical school, which was kind of a novel idea to me, is not drinking fluids during Mm -hmm. meals.
0: I was going to say that. That's, that's That's a huge one.
1: Yeah. And that kind of blew my mind. I feel like our, you know, again, in America, our meals are often very salty and heavy. And we're always like drinking something because we got to get that salt down, you know, whether it's a glass of water or a beer or whatever it is. Um, But that actually decreases our digestive fire, they call it. um, Mm -hmm. And it can inhibit gastric juices and really slow down and inhibit digestion overall. So, you know, small sips of water are okay throughout your meal, but don't like chug a glass.
0: Um, yeah my uh, my father was telling me uh, a lot about that and it's interesting because he's a surgeon and doesn't typically uh focus much on diet he does a lot of uh, uh GI type surgeries but one of the things he always uh tried to hammer home with me is uh not drinking water like 30 minutes an hour before a meal or 30 minutes an hour after a meal and the small sips throughout is is fine um and actually a lot of the um traditions throughout time made similar advice Uh, those kind of old medieval books where they're like eat an apple a day keeps the doctor away with those rhymes they had things that said like don't drink with uh, don't drink before food or after they had all these interesting kind of like verses that people remember about it and it really makes sense from uh, just from a material aspect because you know, if you drink a bunch of water before your meal or after your meal, uh, you just dilute your stomach acid, like, cause mm-hmm. your stomach acid needs to be at a very certain pH to break down optimally and for your enzymes to work. Right. So if you just drink a, a crap ton of water, you're raising your pH up more to neutralish, And, uh, you do that enough and just your enzymes just stop working. Uh, you know, the, the food doesn't get broken down and then what are the downstream effects of that? You know, all this undigested food is now in your GI tract and um, all now the microbes have to come in and deal with it. And then you get all these weird things like flatulence and gas and abdominal symptoms when sometimes it could, it could just be that. That's why it's so um, GI health is so complicated because any one of those factors that we talked about could be like, it could be part of the cause or it could be, the whole cause in in some cases.
1: Yeah, it's super tricky. Um, I always think about when, you know, as I went through medical school, I remember all these sayings that were told to me as a child. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, whatever. And then I went through medical school and like learned the science. And I'm like, oh, there was actually a reason why people told me these things. For example, the one I always think of is don't swim after eating. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, why, I, what, what's the problem with swimming after one, eating? Yeah. Is the shark going to come eat me? Cause I taste extra delicious now, but it makes sense. Cause if you think about that parasympathetic and sympathetic tone, when you're swimming, you're, you're, you know, moving around, all that blood is shunted to your extremities and it's not in your digestive system. So if you have just eaten and all of your blood is not there to help with digestion, then the gut you know, the food just sits there and then it starts to ferment and then you'll get bloated and you'll get cramps, Mm which is why they say don't eat. And I'm like, Oh, now I know.
0: Also, it's just horrible. Have you ever eaten too much and tried to swim? It is not fun. It's not fun. swimming.
1: But I need to know why.
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yes. Uh, I noticed that, um, a lot with, uh, doing any kind of vigorous exercise after meals. Um, it always completely floored me to see people who would eat big meals and then, you know, do like hard martial arts training 30 minutes after. Um, oh. When my experience was, that was just like a world of nausea. That was just a world of nausea for me. If I, if I, you know, ate uh, a decent sized meal and then did like hard cardio. Whew,
1: oh, yeah. I just like reflect. Good. I reflect back to my high school years and all those things we just talked about with food hygiene. I didn't do any of those. I would go from school and I'd be driving to my next ballet class and I'd be shoving a burrito down my mouth mm-hmm. while I was changing clothes in the car with a half an hour to get across town to my ballet class. And then I go to my five hours of dance class after shoving a burrito down my throat. Yeah. Yes. Doing a bunch of pirouettes after a burrito is not ideal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. How, uh, how adapted the body is. You can pretty much do that your whole life and, Um, I mean, you probably, you know, live a long, long life, uh, and your body will tolerate it, adapt, but being that we are in the profession of, of, uh, you know, health and not just lack of disease, uh, or getting rid of those unpleasant type of symptoms that can happen from food. I mean, it it just makes a lot of sense. And if it overall increases your health. Uh, because of the impact of nutrients, vitamins, things like that, that, uh, you know, you could be eating salad every day, but if your digestive system is not absorbing it, it, it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, the fiber is of course great, but um, that's always a really fascinating aspect of diseases like celiacs uh, and IBS, IBD, um, different stomach issues of how certain like vitamin and nutrient deficiencies occur directly because of them. And then they start having all these neurological symptoms and they think it's something else, but it's really, they have, you know, uh, like deep vitamin deficiencies, not like the kind that you get when you don't eat it too often, but the kind where you get none of it for like years yeah. and you start getting like nervous system tremors and things like that. I've heard, I've heard of that from B12.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, It's a serious process of elimination with GI complaints. It can be so many different things because everybody, excuse me, everything in our body impacts our gut. Like I said, it's our second brain. So whether it's stress or diet or, you know, something completely different, it's so hard to pick, you know, pinpoint, Mm
0: -hmm. but I would
1: say 80% of the time, this is a number that I just made up. I don't have real statistics, but Mm -hmm. I would say about 80% of the (laughs) time, whether the diet is really the exact cause of their symptoms, there's likely still some kind of food sensitivity going on. And that's Mm -hmm. just so common, you know, our food is not good quality most of the time. Mm -hmm. And the less we spend on our food, you know, the more affordable food is even worse quality. So you see these huge discrepancies with, you know, people that are lower income getting food stamps and they can only afford those really cheap foods. And that's just like this, horrible vicious cycle that just Mm. contributes to worsening outcomes down the road. And uh, it's, it's just tricky. Yeah.
0: That's, that's uh, you know, that's incredibly unfortunate that the typically the worst foods for you are cheaper because of the mass production, the processing, those aspects when already the socioeconomic effects on health are already so great from the stresses and uh, lack of being able to find Uh, medical help when you actually need it and things progressing way farther than they ever would. If you regularly saw a doctor, even once a year, and then add on top of it, the whole concept of certain areas of the country being food deserts of just there's actually no options other than fast food and and things like that, because that's who uh, comes in. And then, um, and then, you know, diabetes and things like that being pretty uh, common in those uh, type of areas, even for younger uh, younger children, like 10, 11, 12 already with type two, like developed diabetes from their diet, which is, it, it diet's really important. Um,
1: 100%. On, on a I've national in-
0: level, it's not very addressed though.
1: Absolutely. And I've worked in, you know, I've worked with low income communities in the United mm-hmm. States and those low income communities are similar. I've also worked with people in Haiti and Tanzania. And so I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of, you know, health disparities and in low income communities and when you're treating patients in Haiti, you certainly do not give dietary recommendations. Mm. Like you're eating. Awesome. Keep doing that.
0: Mm. Right.
1: You can't be like, Oh, eat organic. Oh, stop eating that. You know, you really are like, great. You're eating. Let's just, you got to address things completely differently with those population. I can't tell you how many times I've heard naturopaths say, Oh, just eat organic. I'm like, do you know how expensive organic food is? That is not easy really for people expensive. to do. You've got to meet people where they're at. And I, um, you know, treat, I've treated a lot of homeless population. And again, you can't say go buy organic food or only eat fruits and vegetables. They eat what they can get. And you just have to work with those patient populations. So mm. that's where like those things like food hygiene can come into play because mm. those are free, easy things that everybody can mm. do. You may not be able to fix exactly what they're eating, but you might help you know, address that high sympathetic tone and help stimulate digestion in those ways. So you have Mm -hmm. to think about ways that you can treat these things, you know, low cost that can be effective for everybody and a long term. We don't want to rely on a supplement forever that may not be accessible. Mm -hmm. Um we want things that people can do consistently.
0: What would you what would you say is uh the most low cost, cost optimal way of eating in terms of health? Like let's say for people who aren't in extreme poverty but um you know like they can use some extra money that kind of thing they're not exactly uh having so much income that they can go and buy you know organic and eat organic for uh, three times a day or something like that what's what would you say is like the most cost optimal way of Ooh, of eating
1: that's a tricky question because it's going to be variable for every person i mm-hmm. think you know, if you're able to grow your food at all, that's a well, that's, great option. <laughs> that's
0: that's a good, that that's the best one probably. Yeah,
1: that would be the best one. I mean, gardening can be expensive too. And a lot of people live in apartments, especially living in the city of Portland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's not an accessible option for somebody, but of course that would be ideal. Um, big fan of community gardens and having, you know, especially for homeless populations, like having fruit trees that are allowed to be eaten off of, big fan of that. Um, but otherwise I would say, you know,
0: congratulations. This is the Easter egg portion of the podcast, or should I say Easter herb. This herb, which is the code that gets you a free Demeter's Bitters, a uh, digestive stimulation blend that helps with gas, bloating, any kind of indigestion, feelings of fullness, or feeling like food just sits there. It really stimulates that digestive system, has a lot of amazing spicy delicious herbs in it to cover some of that bitter taste that comes from this particular herb if you visit ktherbs.com that's letter k letter t herbs.com and look at demeter's bitters the listed main ingredient is this word that starts with a g this will be the code to send out one free Demeter's bidders to a podcast listener. Free shipping, $0, 100% off discount. There will only be one sent out and this offer ends May 1st. So be the first one to do it. So you just go to kterbs.com if you're having trouble uh, figuring out what the name of that herb is, which is the code that you will enter At checkout, when you add Demeter's Bitters to your shopping cart, I've heard so many amazing things about this blend and that one particular herb, which is the code, and it starts with a G and ends with an N. And if you can guess it, go ahead, go to ktherbs.com and try your best. This Easter egg ends on May 1st and one lucky podcast winner will get the tincture for completely free and free shipping. The blend again is Demeter's Bitters. It's a a digestive bitters blend. And the featured herbal ingredient starts with a G, is the code to enter. Now unless you're very, very lucky or just really quick, the code probably expired because somebody else used it. However, if you got it, congratulations. I hope you enjoy it. The best way to use that blend in particular is about 10 or 15 minutes before a meal, and it helps stimulate your digestion before you start eating to help digest more thoroughly so you get more nutrients, so you have less indigestion, less gas, bloating, just an overall smoother, well-functioning GI, and a healthier gut. If you didn't get the Easter egg, do not be disappointed because seven remaining buy one, get one free tinctures are available. So if you like any other blends, the digestive bitters blend, want to try it out. It is uh, an old traditional formula that relies on the use of a very bitter herb and the taste itself of bitter on the taste receptors and actually they're finding in the gut that there are bitter receptors, uh, stimulates the vagus nerve which controls digestion and starts it up. You know, one of the biggest issues with uh, the West and our culture and perhaps the whole world at this point is that we have a hard time getting into the kind of parasympathetic state that we need to really be able to rest and digest our food, get the most from it, and not have any leftovers or undigested food that just sits there. One great way to get the parasympathetic system active and ready to digest and rest is to pray over your food, take three deep breaths before you start eating, and then really experience the food, smell it, taste it, eat slowly, not in a rush. The meal is the activity. These kind of things help inspire and stimulate the processes that really need to be functioning for our gut our GI, and really our whole body to be at its best health because we need nutrition, we need nutrients. And if things aren't properly digested, then we miss out on a lot of the good things that are in our foods. On ktherbs.com, as I was mentioning before, there are seven tickets left for a buy one, get one free with free shipping on any of the mythical mixtures. So we have blends that uh, offer natural pain relief, that help with sleep, use ingredients such as valerian, and lavender, blends that help with stress, uh, restoring the adrenals, helping with fatigue, helping with energy, blends that help with allergies, boosting the immune system, uh, reproductive and hormonal health, and uh, quite a few more. So check those out. The code to buy one, get one free is Herbal Space Hour, so just Herbal Hour, and you can enter those at uh, checkout. If you ever have any questions about any of the mythical mixtures, how the blends are made, or really any questions about herbalism or naturopathy in general, feel free to send your direct questions to drdan Doctor Dan at KTHerbs.com. That's D O C T O R d-a-n at kterbs.com or you can visit drdans.org d-o-c-t-o-r-d-a-n-s.org to get a free first initial consult to help you out with any nutrition questions you have herbal questions supplement questions maybe you want to learn a new mindfulness technique Maybe you've been having this nagging issue that you just want to try uh, a natural way in treating. On drdans.org, although I am a naturopathic doctor licensed in Oregon, these uh, consults through drdans.org are more coaching-based and focusing on a wellness, giving kind of general recommendations, not diagnosing, not claiming to treat, and not prescribing anything. However, if you do live nearby uh, Portland, Oregon, or really anywhere in the Oregon area, I just opened my new naturopathic clinic, focusing in on a myriad of things, Uh, but in particular, mental health, especially natural treatments for mental health, such as with using herbs, supplements, diets, and any other holistic approach Any other mindful approach that treats you as an individual and finds the right way to go about the issue and is also open to uh, conventional and integrative options when they uh, seem like a good idea, they're safe, and they're effective. You can give me a call at 503-303-0930 to do a free initial chat. If you're in the Oregon area, I offer uh, telehealth naturopathic services for mental health, chronic disease, and a variety of other things. And I also offer in-person visits in uh, North Portland. And if you want to read more about what kind of conditions I can treat, if there's any way I can help you, what my training looks like, what my special expertise is in, and how I can be of service in your health naturally, holistically, And with you at the heart of it in mind, always searching for the root cause and not just the surface symptom, you can go on holisticpsyche.com to read more or to schedule from there. If you're in the Oregon area, that's H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C-P-S-Y-C-H-E.com. Thank you guys for listening to the Herbal Hour podcast and all the support. Thanks to you guys who listen to the Herbal Hour podcast and uh, support the natural health community. We've reached over 20,000 downloads and we are starting to really exponentially grow. So thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this show is useful for you and that it uh, inspires you to seek out your greatest health of mind, body and spirit and to trust in nature, connect with nature and find yourself there. Thanks for bearing with the promotions, if they're bothersome to you. If not, that's awesome. Uh, I do not allow any paid advertising on this podcast as of now, nor do I plan to. Everything that I talk about, mention any promotional offer. These are either herbal medicines I myself make. They're the consults that I'm offering or other things Related to the show, myself, and my work. So, thank you guys so much for understanding. Let's get back into it. Last Dr. Gontroff was talking, she was talking about the dirty dozen. The vegetables and fruits which tend to have the most pesticides on them.
1: Without focusing on organic, we had those like the the dirty dozen and the mm-hmm. clean fifteen. So if you're going to buy fruits and vegetables, I would and you don't want to buy everything organic. I would at least look at those lists. So the the clean what is it the clean thirteen and the dirty dozen is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the dirty dozen are like those those foods that you should really highest in
0: pesticides. Highest
1: in pesticides. So those ones you should get organic, whereas the clean fifteen are more likely. Um, a better decision. So, you know, if you're trying to make choices, go there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And just to throw in a point there, because that just adds another level of complexity to it. Sometimes people who are eating like amazingly tons of vegetables, tons of fruits, then they're getting wild symptoms because of all the pesticides, glyphosate that, uh, because organic sometimes doesn't even really mean organic because they have certain allowances of different organic pesticides. I'm I'm making quotation marks if you're not watching the video. Um, so that at another level of complexity, maybe it's not even that the person has a food sensitivity to gluten, but because wheat is so heavily, uh, pesticided, um, and hybridized and genetically modified, maybe that is part of it. So it's like, there's just a million, there's a million things. Um,
1: Yes, yeah, that 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 was the topic you brought about the wheat and the, the products, the process that it goes through, and that contributing to a higher gluten sensitivity than we've seen in the past is definitely a speculation. And there's honestly not a ton of studies being done on that. And I think that should be part of our studies because, of course, pesticides are going to impact our gut health and our gut microbiome and yeah. everything thereafter. So of course, there's a connection. And I think you know we talk about like nitrites and sulfites, and and those are like pretty um well-accepted things that we put on our food and those cause a ton of symptoms. So these things that we're all fighting against and not have our food, of course, are going to have some negative outcomes.
0: Mm -hmm. I, um, in terms of that, uh, cost effective diet, uh, what we were talking about kind of made me think of it because, um, because for some, some patients, you know, the diet seems like that's the place where if you dress it, a lot of the things will, Kind of resolve, but then there's the question of the uh kind of uh income, the finances, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking that eating like simple but healthy foods might be a possible solution for that. Like, um, for example, getting big bags of frozen vegetables are really cheap, getting big bags of frozen berries big things of like, uh, you know, like, uh, peanuts or almonds, um, those kind of things. And just relying more on those, which actually are more of the natural diet of humans, like throughout history, you know, like nuts and berries and some meats and things like that. I think there's a way that if you keep your diet really simple, that you could actually have, uh, all the health benefit and, and almost none of the associated costs because, uh, you could pretty, like, it's interesting in these times, we we're so used to like very complex mixes of foods that we don't really eat things single ingredient very often. It's, it's pretty rare, like our meals are, you know, 10 ingredients mixed and cooked. Um, but that definitely is not the, the norm for all of human history. The norm for human history is you eat what you can find. So maybe one day you're just all you're eating is berries. Maybe the next day you got uh, you got a like an elk, so you're just eating meat for a week. Then just just meat, and then just rotating based on what you have. And I'm assuming um, that our body is at least adapted evolutionarily to some degree to not only surviving that, but probably thriving from it to some yeah. degree.
1: I mean, if you think about evolution and, you know, if, if you all believe in that, um, <laughs> then, um, you know, what we grew up, grew up on, you know, what as a species, what we grew up mm-hmm. on eating is like fruits and nuts and berries and vegetables and, mm-hmm. and meat. And so that really is what our we were made to eat. That's mm-hmm. what we should be eating. There was no processed foods hundreds of years ago. So that's not really what our bodies used to. But again, you mentioned like food deserts earlier. Mm-hmm. Vegetables are a little bit harder to come by. Nuts are expensive. I mean, mm-hmm. peanuts are a little bit more affordable, but peanuts aren't really the best nut for you. So mm-hmm. trying to get nuts on a low cost is can be really challenging. Nuts mm-hmm. are one of like the most expensive snacks out there despite mm-hmm. them being delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, frozen vegetables, frozen fruit, definitely. Um, I'm also a huge fan of like saving food scraps and using every piece of the food that you can. Um which has actually been really helpful and that can be cost effective as well. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, I make apple cider vinegar with leftover apple peels. Mm -hmm. Um, So nothing goes to waste or I make like a tomato powder over tomato, leftover tomato peels that have been dehydrated. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, in general we're a pretty wasteful culture uh, and there's a lot we can do to save there. Um, Just really maximizing everything that we use.
0: Mm -hmm. And Um, finding uh, good locations to buy those healthier foods too, because there's a really wide difference between different stores. I mean, uh, some of them, like like Whole Foods are just they're just crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you have really high income, it's still uh, excessive to uh, buy a lot of the foods there, not necessarily just the vegetables and fruits, like they're okay priced for the organic things, but if you go there and buy like prepared type of things, that are more organic and healthy, those things are always extremely expensive. Uh, But places like Trader Joe's are really good because their frozen foods are pretty cheap, uh, relatively speaking. Um, I've been amazed with how far just Trader Joe frozen foods can go and the quality of it and that aspect.
1: I think you you just made me think of another point is those people that can't cook and how difficult eating healthy is for the people that can't cook, whether they have access to food or not. If you can't cook it, that becomes super challenging. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there's all those new meal services out there that are really great. They'll deliver like really nice, well-prepped meals to your door. You just pop them in the oven. Yeah, those are getting big now. Those are really big. Again, you know, cost-effective. Those are really expensive too. Super expensive. So that gets a little bit tricky. But yeah, not being able to cook makes eating healthier more challenging because then you go to those processed foods, you go to those microwavable foods because that's what you know how to eat. And and that makes it tricky. Um, And then I was thinking, you know, we're really lucky to live in a a city that has a lot of resources for low income Mm -hmm. individuals. I know nearby me, there's several um, food pantries that you can go to on a weekly basis. And unfortunately, like we mentioned before, food pantry food is often full of crap you know carbohydrates and sugar and really Mm. unhealthy foods because that's what's cheap and free but they do often have fruits and vegetables you know they might be fruits and vegetables that are on their way out and are getting near expiring but they do have them at almost every food pantry at least in portland and so that can be another helpful way to access healthy foods you know it's not all healthy but some healthy foods for low-income individuals
0: yeah and i I like this theory too of like nothing is ever perfect about exposure to pesticides or bad foods or this or that, but what is like the best option that can be done? Because you can't like, even if you eat at the tippy top of organic, you still get things that you don't really want in your body. Uh, The water supply, there's just certain like the air, there's certain things you can't really control. So the theory of, um, have you heard the theory of toxicity where it's like, uh, it's just drops in a bucket, drop by mm-hmm. drop by drop by drop, by, and eventually it overflows. And mm-hmm. you can't you can't get rid of all of the factors completely that cause it, but you can lower the overall load on your body, and then that's really all that matters. Because um, fundamentally, our bodies are really resilient and strong and meant to adapt, so we can handle some things but when it becomes too much chronically, that's when you start seeing health issues. So I don't think people are having health issues from, you know, eating, you know, fast food once a month or something like that, if for the rest of uh, the month they eat amazingly. Um, so there, there's that also to be said is that, you know, like there's no good or bad foods. It's it's kind of, there's a, better foods and there's context mm-hmm. for for everything.
1: Everything um, in moderation.
0: That's what my dad always says too.
1: Right. Including moderation.
0: Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Including moderation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think as, you know, as naturopaths, there's this stigma like, oh, every naturopathic daughter eat, doctor eats completely organic and they never eat sugar and they never eat processed foods, which is just a lie. Let's like debunk that myth right now. We are human. We eat real food. We might be telling you to eat this way, but we also are human and eat, you know, fast food from time to time. And I think, that's important for people to hear. I, you know, everybody's human. We all have our vices. You're not expected to eat perfectly for your whole life. But like you mm-hmm. said, everything in moderation, you know, if you eat really healthy Monday through Friday and then on your weekends you splurge and have sugar and whatever, that's fine. If that makes your, you happy and that, that's a we factor, want, too. We don't want to be on this like long standing diet that's not sustainable and you're never allowed to have bread again and you can never have sweets again. And that's just like, takes all the joy out of life
0: it's very uh it's very rigid way of uh thinking about things and ultimately that kind of overly strictness about diet usually backfires um yeah it usually backfires against you because you can only do that for so long until your psyche rebels and then you go on like uh sprees almost like as a counter to uh that way of eating because mm-hmm. it's it's super it's super funny like um, after very extreme uh, uh, kind of diets, the tendency, like the second you let them go, you go way on the other end of the spectrum of uh, just eating complete crap. And I've seen this like so many times for, uh, uh, for martial arts training. Cause when people are preparing for a fight, they, you know, they're trying to cut down weight, eat healthy uh, to be at their tip top shape or even to just compete in terms of the weight limit. Um, And they eat amazing. Like they eat, they're just eating like broccoli and chicken and some rice and that that's it. They're just all every day. That's all they eat. They don't no sugar, no alcohol, nothing. Um, And then right after the fight, it's just like McDonald's three times a day. Like I see that all the time and that's kind of what the craving is, is to like make up for that. So I think the approach of like of that balance and wisdom and no, and like understanding uh, just having wisdom about the things you eat. Um, for me, when I feel like, uh, when I feel like, ah, I could use some sugar right now, like I'm craving something sweet. I just, uh, I grab like a bag of frozen Marion berries and I eat those. And like, I mean, they're actually more satisfying than anything else that I would eat. So there's not, um, if you live in like the Northwest area, I highly recommend that by the way, some frozen Marion berries, (laughs) just eat them because, You have to also eat them slow. I eat them still frozen and I chew them and bite them and I eat them over, you know, I just like watch, I eat them like a snack, just like watch a show or something slowly tasting them and stuff. Um, And there's always like uh, alternative options for everything or moderation of like, okay, like I got some really good cookies. Like I'll eat two cookies. That's like my limit for today. Um,
1: Easier said than done. It is so much easier said (laughs) than done.
0: The thing that is uh, that always helps me with that kind of thing is just remembering my past experiences of how I felt after it's like, if I have like this amount, it's delicious, and I'll feel good, and I'll be fine later. But if I have this amount, it'll be a little bit more delicious. But like later, I will pay for it in terms of, you know, whatever the sugar crash or things like that.
1: Right. The diarrhea that comes after the McDonald's.
0: Yeah. 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 Exactly. That's why
1: I can't eat it anymore. I'm like, Oh, every time like, no.
0: Yeah, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't moderate McDonald's. That one's just like yeah. a no go at all times. Yeah. There's some foods that are just no goes.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, that's, it's a good point. And I think, you know, our body adjusts too. So if we've been eating really sugary foods for a long time, that's what our body's going to crave or if we eat really, really salty yes. foods all the time. We're going to want more salt because our body adjusts, but I'm actually coming to the end of, um, whole 30 right now. Mm. And I I like to do whole 30 just once a year, just to like kind of do a reset for my sugar cravings. Primarily. It's not about weight loss. It's not really like, it's supposed to be an extended diet. It's just more like a, a cleanse. Um, which I also have been really craving sugar, and I saw Girl Scout cookies on mm. Hub the other day, and was like, "Oh no, I can't do this at the end of my Whole 30, but I want to." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um,
0: what is but, uh What is Whole 30 for our listeners who may oh, sure. not know what that is?
1: Um, so Whole 30 is a 30 day. I would call it a cleanse more than a diet, and you basically only eat whole foods. Um, so fruits, vegetables, um, protein, and that's pretty much it. And you don't
0: eat any sugar or anything like that? So yeah, No sugar,
1: no dairy, no gluten, no processed foods of any sort, no sugar substitutes. So no fructose, like honey, um, Mm. no stevia or anything like that. No alcohol. um, So just like, you know, standard, like old school diet, fruits, vegetables, and protein. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really great. I I like doing it because it, it provides me, um, inspiration to create new meals that I don't eat Mm. all the time that are still pretty good. Um, There's a lot of, you know, there's all sorts of sites out there that give you great recipes for every Mm -hmm. diet you could ever be on. Um, So, yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. But what what I really like about the Whole30 is, you know, there's no sugar piece Mm -hmm. and, after not having sugar for 30 days, my body does not want sugar. Mm-hmm. If I tried to eat a candy bar right now, I would be so grossed out. Mm-hmm. Um, even like a spoonful of honey is like, um, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so
0: We get desensitized adapts. to it. We get desensitized to how like how sweet something is. And when I stopped eating um, uh, sugar other than uh, occasionally in like my favorite uh, dessert here and there, um, I, I would try like the very sugary ice creams and cake and I would, I would eat it. And like, I would, you know, I would try to enjoy it. I wasn't going in like, Oh, this is going to be terrible kind of thing. I was like, oh this looks kind of good. I would eat it. And I'd be like, mm. it's like, oh, it's almost so it's like too intense. It's like too stimulating. I'm like, I'd rather just eat like a fruit and just like enjoy it, you know?
1: Totally. Yeah. And it's just like the body transitions pretty fast, you know, within a yeah. month of not eating sugar, my body doesn't want sugar. And granted, if I eat, continue to start eating sugar again it's gonna transfer it does transfer yeah. back even faster
0: and right? even just even just uh high glycemic carbs in general what i've been doing with a lot of my um my wellness consults i've been working on diets um and through my own experiences research i've been finding that uh in general for most people and types although some different like constitutional types from ayurveda do better with not this diet and do better with others mm-hmm. um to do lower carb diets like Uh, within the range of about 100 grams or 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. And of those carbohydrates, uh, lower glycemic carbohydrate options like berries, apples, quinoa, buckwheat, uh, whole grain is actually really high glycemic, usually, Mm -hmm. especially the kind of things you get in stores. Um, All the different sources uh, such as that, that tend to be like they spike the response less. And then for the rest of it, it's just eat as much vegetables as you can, not starchy, um, and then eat good quality proteins, basically, in the form of nuts uh, yeah. and uh, good, good meats and things like that. And, yeah,
1: and I don't think there's like one diet that fits all. Mm-hmm. I mean, by no means. Everybody has their own unique needs for their yeah. body. And so it's really hard to give dietary recommendations across the board. Um, one, one general dietary guideline Mm -hmm. we learn a lot about in naturopathic medical school is the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. I'm sure many people are familiar with, and that's just really kind of similar to what you said. It's a diet focused on healthy fats, lean protein and fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And so, you know, again, easier said than done. We can say we should eat like that, but it's a lot more expensive to eat like that. It requires a lot more time and a lot more preparation trying to do the whole 30. Like I have to meal prep. Eight hours a week minimum to sustain myself and not get starving and just eat something junk foody. And I think that's another piece. Is you know, again, as Amer- Americans, we're very busy and mm-hmm. we're always working. And maybe that's changed a little bit because a lot of us are working from home now, which improves our access to food, hopefully. Um, But if we don't have time to cook and we don't have time to eat, <laughs> like we're still going to stay unhealthy no matter what we're eating if we're not prioritizing that, um, um, which so we true. don't.
0: And uh you know, earliest traditions of medicine, Hippocrates, that, that branch, they really understood that uh, diet is the foundation of health because um, it, it is the thing that has all, by virtue of the, just the amount of things that you're intaking, the biggest effect on your body. Right. Um, I had this uh, insight when I was eating this really big salad and I would eat uh throw like a bunch of chicken and stuff and make it like blue cheese, really delicious. Anyway, I was eating this gigantic salad and I realized, um, this is just herbalism. Like these are just plants. Like these are just medicinal plants, but I'm taking them in, in the dosage of hundreds of grams. So of course it's going to affect me more than like a supplement would, Uh, how could it not, you know, it's just so much material. And if everything that's being put in is processed, then that's going to, Uh, the body will be more or less okay. But after time, I think the strain will lead to all sorts of unforeseen things and, you know, just give predispositions to other health issues Mm -hmm. um, uh, happening.
1: Yeah. I mean, food is medicine, right? That's what we've Mm -hmm. learned in our whole career. And I think that's really important to reiterate that everything we eat, you know, you are what you eat is that old saying Mm. used to say as kids, but it's completely true. You know, if you're just filling yourself full of junk food and crap, that's what you're going to feel like. And that's what you're going to end up looking like. And your health is going to look like that. But Mm. if you're eating really healthy foods and nutritious foods that are, you know, full of actual nutrients, then you're going to feel so much better. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of really good foods out there that are actually specifically really helpful for the gut. Mm. Um, you know, this is the herbal hour. So, talk about a couple of herbs like Let's fennel. <laughs> yes. Fennel is one of my favorite GI herbs. Also tastes delicious if you're into that licorice mm-hmm. flavor, but like a, some roasted fennel, so good for the gut. It's a really good carminative herb, which means mm-hmm. it can help with like the, the gas and the bloating. So even just like throwing fennel or ginger, another one of my big favorite GI herbs um, and flavors in general. i, I pretty much throw ginger and everything, but mm-hmm. it not only is it good for nausea, but it helps with relaxation of the um, intestinal muscles. So it can help with like spasms and overall digestion. So like, there's so many things we can add into our food that are super healthy for us. And, you know, just a spice here and there, like a little sauteed herb and that's just like enhancing the. Yeah.
0: You know, and it's, it's benefits. cool too, that, uh, that fennel, uh, can be used just as Not even like taken as a supplement, but you could just throw it, you know, into your food or uh, fresh ginger and that kind of thing. I've always found ginger to be, whenever uh, like indigestion comes around, it's probably one of the best, quickest acting uh, herbs, and it's it's like food grade. You could just eat a whole bunch of it, and it's um, that's a really good one. I I always uh,
1: travel um, with ginger.
0: Yeah, ginger is one of my top ten like must have herbs. One hundred percent, especially like a really strong tea made out of it. If you have any kind of like tummy ache or indigestion, like especially like you said, nausea. That's like definitely a keynote. Like it works mm-hmm. amazingly for nausea. Yeah, the kind of nausea that comes from uh, like something like stomach food related more so than from from other causes. Mm-hmm. I also like bitter herbs. Uh, the bitters like gentian, which is oh, that's Disgusting. such a bitter It's like the
1: definition of bitter.
0: <laughs> yeah, just even a small amount of it. Um, one of the blends I made uh, for my company has uh, gentian in it. and the whole uh, the whole like tincture was formed around me disguising the taste of the gentian at least a little bit. So I added like fennel, ginger, clove, like anything I could get in there and and then some glycerin to sweeten it up. Um, to kind of like Trojan horse it in, uh, but a bitter has to be bitter or else it's not acting on those bitter receptors and having that kind of vagus nerve effect, which is beneficial from it. But, uh, if you take like a little piece of gentian root and chew on it, oh, you will have bitterness for, (laughs) you can, you can like eat a whole meal afterwards. You can like drink water. You're going to be tasting bitter for like at least 30 to 45 minutes. Um, but with that being said, if you can, if you can handle that, it it is very noticeable how it affects digestion. Like uh, typically the digestive bitters, such as gentian are taken about 15 minutes or 30 minutes before meals. And when you take it, it does all those things that we were kind of talking about with like the, the smelling food and everything. It just like forces your body to do that. You, you take that and then you just start, you literally feel yourself salivating. You start your stomach starts gurgling, everything starts moving. You're like, "Whoa!" And you're kind of like ready to go. It's like you started the you started the engine of your car, and now you yeah, can
1: start that digestive cascade.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that that's that's a helpful thing for people who don't have the time to sit down and be mindful when they eat. Is like at least prepare your body or digestive enzymes. What do you think about digestive enzymes?
1: Yeah, um, digestive enzymes. You know they're not for everybody. I think um, I would prefer to start with bitters and more of a natural herbal approach. Um, but digestive enzymes are certainly warranted. And I think that, you know, going back to like food sensitivities, if you have a food sensitivity to dairy, but you really want to eat some ice cream at your birthday party, go take a digestive enzyme before you eat that ice cream. Mm-hmm. Cause most food sensitivities are, we just don't contain the enzymes that we need to break down the food. Um, so, you know, you don't never eat dairy again, but if you do want to eat dairy, you can eat a digestive enzyme beforehand, and that will help you break down the things that you aren't able to break down. Um, I think, you know, there in our community, in our profession, digestive enzymes are kind of a a topic of argument and Mm -hmm. some people are really for them and some people really are not for them. Some prefer to check your pancreatic function first before you prescribe a digestive enzyme. I'm not necessarily in that camp. I think, you know, give them a trial and if they help, great. I don't think it's something that we should rely on permanently. You know, Um, again, having a supplement long-term isn't ideal. We want to be able to live without supplements. Um, But if you need them for those occasional like heavy carb meals or heavy dairy meals, or, you know, you know, you're going into eating something that you don't tolerate Mm -hmm. super well. I think that's a good time to use digestive enzymes or traveling.
0: Yeah. Like, uh, like you usually don't eat wheat, but you're going to like a pizza place or something and you're like, all right, digestive enzymes, bitters. Yeah. On deck, ready, ready for war.
1: Exactly. And
0: enjoyment. Right.
1: You know, going back to the bitter herbs, my other favorite bitter herb, I think gentian is great. It's like ultra bitter, but one that's a bitter but a little bit more tolerable and can also be you know found out in the wilderness and we can eat is the uh dandelion root Mm -hmm. or dandelion leaves also Mm -hmm. Um, but dandelion root specifically for its bitterness and what i love about this is you can literally go outside right now and find one Mm -hmm. like just about anywhere maybe not this season we just had snow most things are dead but um easily accessible toss it in your salad yeah and cheap and super healthy
0: great uh great too for just uh Uh, hepatoprotective effects, like liver protecting effects, um, true detox, meaning like the actually supporting the function of the liver, which is the detoxer, so to speak of the body. Um, yeah, dandelion is a great one. Another, uh, unexpected bitter, uh, which also helps the liver artichoke leaf. Have you ever had artichoke leaf? That one is like really bitter too. Um, not as bad as gentian, but it's pretty close. It's not like typically used as much for digestive things. It's more of liver concerns, but anything that's really bitter acts on those receptors. So, uh, any kind of bitter type of food will, will trigger that same type of, um, stimulation of the digestive processes. Um,
1: love artichoke, big fan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ar- artichoke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the herb though, like the leaf of it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I,
1: I mean, I like to eat it too, yeah. but also for its medicinal properties.
0: <laughs> me too. It, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting vegetable. Uh, I like to like saute it and some, some butter or something like that. Um, and then you eat it and it leaves this like almost like false sweetness
1: mm-hmm. after you
0: eat it. W- what is that about? It's like, kind of like reminds me of, like Stevia or something.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's really weird. And then if you get any of the leaf that's not edible, it's like uh-huh. Yeah. 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 There's like, piece, <laughs>
0: there's like pieces in artichoke that are just like inedible leaf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the tinctures are made out of yeah. A bitter leaf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, another thing that in my journeys I came upon, which I found pretty helpful in terms of, uh, uh, diet, especially the mindfulness aspect is, um, doing some kind of, uh, mindful activity, like before starting your meal, the, Tradition across pretty much every uh, spiritual path has been, you know, uh, doing a prayer of like thankfulness to do like laying of hands over the food or something like that to um, bless it, those kind of things. I found um, for me doing uh, kind of like Reiki on my food for anyone who does Reiki, it you don't really need to do anything particularly special to do Reiki on food necessarily. It's just uh, like putting your hands like over the over the food and just like uh, being thankful for it, like uh, sending your like loving light into it and those kind of things. And for whatever reason, I've I always found that it was a interesting form of just mindfulness in general because it would bring one into deeper calm very quickly. I don't know what it is specifically around like when you have food in front of you and being mindful, but it's a lot easier to be mindful say like a prayer, this kind of thing. I mean, there's an incredibly long tradition of doing things like that. So maybe it's like hardwired into us. Um, but with those kind of ways, I always I was found my uh, digestion was much better. And I appreciated the food more. Uh, and I was also more mindful of what I was eating. Because if you go in mindfully to eat, like you will just naturally eat slowly. You will just naturally enjoy it because when you're mindful, that's how you eat. Um, when one is like rushing distracted, that's when one doesn't uh, pay attention. So that's, that's like a simple way that, that I found.
1: Yeah. And that kind of ties in a little bit to the food hygiene we were talking mm-hmm. about, but that also plays into a little bit about, um, something we haven't talked about, which is vagal nerve stimulation. Mm. And so we talked a little bit about the vagus nerve and, and how that is the pathway between the gut brain axis, um, and, and the vagus nerve is responsible for that parasympathetic tone, that rest mm-hmm. and digest phase. And and meditation is actually a way that you can stimulate vagal tone. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like meditation, laughing, humming, uh, singing. Um, so our, our vagus nerve goes through our vocal cords as well. So it innervates our vocal cords and then into our um, gut and intestines. So things like humming and laughing will stimulate the vagus nerve mm-hmm. up in our vocal cords, which will then stimulate the digestive secretions um so i imagine that meditative state that you're in with the reiki is activating that vagal tone which is stimulating the digestive cascade and improving digestion overall so that's really cool
0: mm-hmm. i think the ancients have a, had a lot of wisdoms that maybe they did not understand the science behind but they knew that there was something important about praying over food uh, or or praying saying grace or things like that um so that's really, really fascinating way of, uh, of, of looking at it. Um, great, great talk. This reminds me to do more of this kind of thing in my life. Cause it's, it's easy to not, um, to kind of forget about the dietary aspect. when One is busy. Cause, um, you know, you don't have time to cook. You don't, uh, have time to plan out like the intricacy of what a really good diet would look like, um those kind of things. Uh, but as with all things, effort is what leads to results. So it's, it's, it's just the same case with, with dietary aspects as well.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, it's not a quick fix like a lot of us want and and it does take the effort and it, it can be challenging, but I think, you know, figuring out why you have these longstanding GI complaints mm-hmm. and being able to do something about it is really empowering and it might take a long time to get there, but I think
0: it's worth it in the end. Yeah. And it's a lot of times it's kind of went into like, oh, this is what's good for me and what I should do. And it's done with like that kind of approach. Um, But what I found is that when you actually give it a shot for a little bit, you'll start noticing the good yourself and then that will lead you to do it more. So it becomes like more of I eat this kind of food because it makes me feel good, not because I should to be healthy, which mm-hmm. is like this abstract notion. It's right. it's like um, in our way of culture and, and food, we have to like recalibrate to the uh, our own kind of body's wisdom towards food and just being open to the kind of signals that our body gives us about what is good, what is bad, what feels good, what feels bad, which are happening all the time, but are kind of Um, If you're eating, you know, sugar, tons of sugar at every meal, um, you know, you get desensitized to that and that cycle repeats itself, uh, even though it's not uh, what the body really wants. It's almost like more like a like an addiction or something like that, where it's like uh, Mm -hmm. self-reinforcing that when you go without it for a while, you realize, hey, I don't even want it. Like like you were saying that you don't get those um, because, you know. Whenever um well, a lot of times when I bring up, oh, like the sugar intake is a little something to work on, uh, the most common response is like, Oh, well, I get these really bad sugar cravings. And I'm like, Yeah, that's why you get the sugar cravings. It's because you're eating sugar. It's it's kind of it's kind of counterintuitive in a sense, because you would think eating the sugar would satisfy the urge, but that's only temporary. So um yeah. And sugar isn't the, you know, the main evil in the world. Um High fructose corn syrup is.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're going to yeah. avoid anything, always, <laughs>
0: always avoid high fructose corn syrup.
1: Right. It's like, and it's I like think,
0: yeah, that's terrible.
1: I think with all that, I mean, it's really important to reiterate too, that everybody's going to be different. There's not one thing, one size fits all for GI health. And, you know, one diet might work really well for somebody and one and for somebody else that might not work at, at all, same with the herbs and same with any treatment, you know, you have to do what's best for your body. So you kind of have to play around with it. Don't listen to the internet and follow everything they say. And they, oh, that didn't work for me. So it doesn't work. But, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. going to be a little bit different on that journey. So just listen to your body, really like pay attention to what it's saying. And that'll be like the best guide.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, there's a kind of uh, ideal that's separate for each individual. Um, totally. And that is almost never the approach within the kind of dietary space. So it's like this is the best diet for everything. Vegan is the best diet for everything. Uh carnivore is the best diet for everything. Low carb is the best diet for everything. Fasting but,
1: for everyone. Yeah, fasting
0: right. for everyone. And it's like, um one, there's a there there needs to be a distinction between a diet and a lifestyle of eating because they're different. Because there, there really are therapeutic diets where it's like if you do this for 30 days it will help you but this is not how you should always eat this is not like a everyday thing so there's like therapeutic diets or like a, thera- a therapeutic fasting and things things like that then there's the kind of um everyday lifestyles that are that are different for for each person based on on their needs um and i've experimented with like most if not all of the diets and kind of settled around my homeostasis of kind of just generally knowing um I started out as like vegetarian, then I went to like pescatarian for a couple of years, and um, and you know it, it evolved over time. And now I'm now I have been enjoying a lot of like grass fed type of type of meats and been feeling good with that. So it's like you almost have to like know what's out there, but you have to kind of just like listen to yourself and maybe somebody who's looking out for your health, kind of thing.
1: And it is an ever-evolving journey. I think we talked a little bit about that. You know, you might not be able to eat something one day, and then all of a sudden you can't eat it because you're in a totally different headspace and your Mm is improved. And so, you know, it's it's ever changing, just as the rest of life.
0: Yeah, and uh, to to add uh, to that is it depends on what your what you're trying to do with your body because that also defines your diet. Um, You know. Intense athletes, they, they need to eat differently. They actually need a good amount of carbs in their diet. They can't do low carb, uh, like weight, serious weight lifters. Shouldn't really do keto from, from my understanding of it. Cause it, it, it will actually limit them in a lot of ways, strength wise, uh, Olympic champions. They obviously can't like do regular fast. They, they just need so many calories that they'll, they'll just waste away if they do anything like that. Exactly. Um, so for each person, different diet or different modification. And for a person throughout their life and for what they're wanting to do with their body, I think that's another key thing to Mm -hmm. like, what, what is their optimal way of living and to support that with the diet rather than just doing what's quote unquote healthy, so to speak.
1: Exactly. We're all our own people got to treat them as such.
0: Absolutely. And uh, just like we're all our own people, we all have our own microbiomes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. So individualistic.
0: <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see where, uh, where the research and where uh, the conventional take that kind of understanding and if they uh, kind of uh, focus in on the importance of the microbiome and, and things of that matter.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to see a big shift in the next few years. I think there's going to, you know, it's already starting to happen. Huge focus on the gut. And I think that, you know, conventional doctors are really going to start to see a shift in that, in their training and and focus. I've already had several MDs reach out to me asking about specific diets and how that affects patients. And I I, I think it's, you know, I think the gut is going to be a big focus for the next decade. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited to see what comes of that.
0: Yeah. And there's... There's, of course, a good deal of uh, complexity with even like uh, applying diets or helping someone to apply an, a diet because the traditional method is like, you know, just saying like, this is what's healthy, just like do it. And of course, that doesn't work. Almost like nine, If I'm making up a number here 90% of the time. Um, but understanding the complexity of the the mental and the psychological aspects of 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 diet too in helping somebody come to their ideal diet through things like motivational interviewing and uh, being supportive, guiding but not forcing. Because at the end of the day, um, even you know, naturopaths who are very well studying subjects, no one knows their body better than themselves if they're given the right tools. So that's always that's always important to Agreed. to keep in mind.
1: Agreed. And I reiterate that to my patients all the time when they ask me like, what should I eat? Can I eat this? Can I eat this? I'm like, I don't know. It's going to depend on how your body feels. So listen to your body and that will be your answer.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't
1: tell you how you're going to respond to things.
0: Yeah. And guiding along that process mm-hmm. of how would you even know what's good? We can definitely help a lot with that kind of thing. Yeah.
1: I think that's what we're here for. We're, we're guides. We may be doctors, but we're really guides.
0: Yeah. I think that's the, that's the proper place.
1: Yeah, I
0: agree. All right. Well, uh, that was uh, Dr. G talking about GI, Dr. Gontroff. Um, What is your Instagram? Dr. GND?
1: Yep, Dr. GND.
0: All right. And you can follow me at uh, Dr. Dan, that weird under space symbol, which is just a space medicine man uh, on Instagram. And this has been the Herbal Hour podcast. I hope uh, this inspires you to be more mindful of... Uh, the blessing of food in our lives. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Herbal Hour podcast. If you like the show, if you love natural health, please be sure to subscribe, like, comment, get it around, spread the word. Uh, Natural health is certainly on the rise. But the profession that I'm part of, naturopathic medicine, is still relatively small compared to the behemoth that is the medical industrial complex, which even uh, the people who work within it do not necessarily like. I mean, how, how could you like the way that insurance is uh, forcing you to see patients for five minutes, three minutes, four minutes, just to meet bottom lines? So... The answer, as with all things, is with the grassroots, the local, and sharing what inspires us, helping each other out, being part of the community, and sharing our love. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to be a guest on the Herbal Hour podcast, please send me an email at doctordan at kt Or if you know someone who you think would be a great guest on here to talk about any topic in holistic health, alternative health, natural health, really all the things that heal the mind, body, and spirit from diet, yoga, spiritual practices, anything is within the sphere. And those contact informations again are holisticpsyche.com if you want to uh, schedule a consult in the Oregon area or Portland's in person, especially for uh, natural mental health treatments. The number is 503-303-0930 if you'd like to give me a call and chat about what's been bothering you, and we can talk a little bit about how I could be of service, or I can point you in the direction of a practitioner or a resource to help you out.